Coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for another episode of Tech Talk with your host, Joey Klein. Welcome, everyone. Another episode of Tech Talk. Um, We've got a really nice uh, slate of companies to talk to today, all very entrenched in the Atlanta technology scene, but very different types of um, operators here. You know, everyone from, you know, founder to CEO to COO, um, you know, and, and every range in between. So we are going to talk to, uh, first, we're going to chat with Jim Berryhill, CEO and co-founder of DecisionLink. And then we're going to talk to Jim Garrett, chairman and co-founder of HireWire. And finally, Anita Reed, chief operating officer of my supplier. As always, we start alphabetically first. Jim Berryhill, how you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Thanks for being here, Joey. Good. So as I was, uh, I was thinking about how we start this, you know, your technology is focused on selling. And I had a joke in my mind about the world's oldest profession. And then remember, well, there's another world's oldest profession. But, but sales really is, I mean, if you can, if you think about what has stayed constant throughout time, humanity has always sold to each other, whether it's been some sort of a bartering system or whether it's been, you know, SaaS sales like we have today. And you've really devoted your life to selling, haven't you? Well, it wasn't by choice, but uh, that's how I got started in the uh, software industry. And um, I have a fundamental belief that sales is a noble profession. And I uh, maybe less noble belief that if somebody doesn't sell something, nobody has dinner. So uh, sales is very important in, uh, uh, in our world, in our economy, and a part of what our uh, objective is, is to help sellers be better at their jobs. And by being better at their jobs means being better aligned to their uh, customers and buyers. I, I've always thought, and this is, of course, as a salesperson myself, I've always thought that selling maybe more in elite institutions than perhaps day-to-day life gets a bad rap. It's You don't really encounter many people right out of college that say, I want to go be a sales rep, right? Even if that is, as you said, a noble profession and a lucrative one, if you're good at it at that, um, more focused perhaps on working for a Fortune 500 company or a consulting firm or a bank. And I've always thought that institutions did young people a disservice by not really highlighting how rewarding a career in sales could be. Yeah, that's a uh, really good observation. Um, and uh, 25 years ago, it was uh, different. But today, uh, there are some 75 or 80 uh, major universities in the United States that in their business schools have a bachelor's degree with a specialization in sales. And that has evolved to that point because that's where the jobs are whenever young people are coming out of college, uh, is in uh, sales uh, roles, uh, business development, inside sales, and uh, graduation, and so forth. And and it's uh, probably the most lucrative uh, from an economic standpoint, uh, and that is a part of the uh, uh, conversation, but it's a very rewarding uh, uh, occupation as well. But the uh, the marketplace recognition of, uh, of sales as a uh, disciplined, and uh, uh, a profession for uh, uh, training in business schools and so forth has been very gratifying. That's actually extremely gratifying for me to hear. I feel like that's been somewhat of a sea change, even in you know the, the decade plus since I've been out of university. I don't remember anything like that being touted um, at the business school within my uh, undergraduate uh, level. Well, the education uh, system is uh, conforming to the reality of the marketplace. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, so so what has changed about sales so much, at least in the past 10 to 15 years, that necessitated, um, that drove you to, you know, at, later on in your career, really become an entrepreneur and start DecisionLink? Yeah, so I spent uh, 30 years working for uh, big enterprise software companies and big in uh, 1976 when I got my first job was about uh, $15 million a year, not anything like it is today. Um, but, um, uh, but there's been, I think, a, a lack of um, uh, codifying of uh, professional uh, tooling and training and, uh, and uh, infrastructure for sales. One of my best friends, uh, my oldest uh, friend, uh, is uh, or is one of the uh, half a dozen uh, engineers 
that codified the Six Sigma discipline at Motorola back in the early 80s. And sales is starting to have that kind of discipline and structure uh, applied to it. And so um, we're, we're about value selling. And uh, people ask me who was the first value seller. I think it was probably Marco Polo on the Silk Road. Uh, but, um, but there hasn't been an application for, uh, to help sellers in the uh, value selling process. Uh, you wouldn't think of doing financials with uh, uh, accountants and spreadsheets or CRM or manufacturing or distribution. And so we founded our business on the premise that, uh, that uh, value selling or value enablement is a uh, business function uh, should have professional application and capability associated with it to help not only sellers, but um, uh, but uh, marketing organization, customer care, customer success organization. If you think about the relationship between a buyer and a seller, it's all about buyer value. And so uh, that's uh, where we uh, and why we founded our business. And for me personally, it was a matter of, I was tired of working for big companies and uh, not having the uh, uh, capabilities we needed to be successful. So uh, a couple of colleagues and I started DecisionLink uh, uh, on that uh, on that premise, and I think what you're referring to is you know you look across all functional areas of an organization, and there's some sort of you know ERP system that that is uh, you know sacrosanct um, you know within that functionality that you would never think of doing you know accounting's job or finance's job without it. And yes, sales and marketing has CRM, and that's an important tool. But what specifically does DecisionLink offer? Uh, way above whatever you know, uh, yeah. uh, above and beyond what CRM can do that is integral to sales. So um, CRM is a uh, system of record, uh, keeping score, counting, uh, counting dollars, and uh, tracking opportunities and so forth. But it doesn't add anything to the ability for a seller to relate to a buyer about what the buyer cares about, and then. Um, you know, my uh, Central Florida kind of uh, common way of saying, if I ask you for a dollar, I ought to be able to tell you what you're going to get for it, how much money you're going to save, how much risk you're going to mitigate, how much money you're going to make, whatever the case may be. And that work has historically been done by um, analysts and financial analysts and so forth using Excel, and nobody could understand what they were talking about except them. Um, and so we built a uh, application that morphed into a platform with a number of integrated applications that give the ability uh, for uh, everyone to participate in the value conversation. When you think about the value, uh, I believe that uh, people buy based on uh, desire and emotion, and they justify it based on uh, logic and uh, empirical evidence. And uh, the, uh, the second part has been missing. Uh, we built uh, our system to marry those together. Uh, nobody wants to just look at a set of numbers. They want to, they, they want to know what uh, the value is going to be to them, and they want to understand how it's going to uh, impact uh, the language of business, uh, the office of the CFO, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, and that's, what we, uh, that's what we built to and for with an emphasis on um, everybody sells. Uh, if I'm a sales rep, if I'm a pre-sales consultant, if I'm a marketing person, uh, there's a lot of statistical evidence today that says that 70 to 80% of the traditional sales cycle occurs before a buyer ever talks to a seller. Um, they examine the website, they self-educate, uh, analyst coverage, so on and so forth. So marketers need to be able to publish that kind of content, that kind of attraction content um, uh, before uh, prospects uh, are, are ever uh, talking to them. After a sale in the subscription economy, it's massively important. We, you know, If I, if I make a $100,000 sale in the subscription economy, I've got to resell it every year to keep that customer. So the ability to quantify the value achieved and realized uh, is, uh, is a part of the uh, play as well. And so that's why we call it the, the life cycle. And mm-hmm. I call it the democratization of value. It's like customer care professionals, sales reps, marketing, the customer themselves, partners, everybody 
should be able to participate in the conversation about customer value. Well, I think your point about how, how buying behavior has changed is an apt one. And all we really need to do is look at our own behavior when buying, right? And that can be buying something, you know, as trivial as a under $100 purchase off of Amazon, or it can be something as monumental as a vehicle or a car. Um, by the time that we encounter, you know, someone on the showroom floor or our real estate agent, typically we probably already know at least half of what we need to know to make that decision. Yeah, in fact, uh, on the automobile side, uh, a decision may be made before you even go. And it may be a matter of saying, um, am I going to buy from one of the online sources? Am I going to buy from a dealer? Am I going to buy new? Am I going to buy used? Uh, You know, I know what I want uh, before I, uh, you know, before I uh, go to the physical shopping uh, or virtual shopping locations. Yep. Now, of course, you know, the, the, the caliber, I mean, look, your, your application can certainly apply to many different industries, I imagine. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the ones that you specialize in and have had success in. But, you know, the customers that you're talking about, I imagine mainly a B2B sale as opposed to a B2C sale, correct? Well, that's correct. Okay. And we have focused on B2B and primarily in the high-tech sector, of which there's about 25 subsectors uh, within high-tech, because that's where we came from. We're a small company. A um, year and a half ago, we were 11 employees. Uh, six months ago, we were 25. Today, we're 45 and, uh, and, and, and growing. Uh, but um, uh, but it applies to uh, lots of industries. We have customers like uh, Caterpillar and Talus that are in the industrial automation, advanced manufacturing businesses. Uh, uh, we have uh, fintech uh, companies like Equifax here in Atlanta that um, uh, that are uh, significant uh, adopters of uh, the ability to express uh, value. We're looking in uh, uh, consumer packaged goods and systems integrators and. Um, uh, lots of industries. Uh, so uh, we'll be uh, uh, delivering a uh, consumer product this year um, and excited about that. But there's, uh, there's also uh, premises in uh, uh, consumerish industries about expressing uh, value. Think in terms of a, um, uh, your local bank of, uh, uh, you, know, a, a floor, you know, in walks a florist and then in walks an auto parts person and then in walks a restaurant person. What if the uh, bank branch manager and personnel could have intelligent conversations about those businesses and the wealth of services the bank could provide uh, to enhance those businesses and relate it to those businesses. Yep. That's value selling, and you don't see it very much. And and, and, and and the reason for that is we haven't given the ability uh, to systemically enable uh, that. And that's what, uh, that's what we're about. Uh, uh, one of my favorite expressions, in 1900, there are 5,000 automobiles in the United States. Fifteen years later, when manufacturing assembly production uh, line, some automation was applied and so forth. There's a half a million a year being built in the United States. And that's what we're about for value. Yeah. Well, well, look, I imagine that your genesis within high-tech sales is, look, part of it is small companies have to, you know, focus. They can't, you know, right. you, you can't spread too far or else you're just everything, you know, nothing to everyone. Um, and also that's where you came from, but it's pretty clear hearing you talk that this can be applicable too. Uh, tons of different industries and tons of different types of sales. Well, we're super excited about that. And, uh, and I'll be candid, uh, three, three and a half years ago, we didn't have the expansion or the scope of vision we have today. Uh, but um, uh, as we expanded and in some of our customer base, we have some really brilliant um, individuals who have helped us uh, expand our uh, vision uh, we uh, recently uh, received a, a major investor from one of the top Silicon Valley uh, venture capital uh, firms, uh, Excel, and one of the top partners in the world, Samir Gandhi. Uh, and they invested in us because they believe in the, uh, in the magnitude and scope of what value management uh, means in the marketplace. And, uh, you know, and I've got a kind of a crazy metaphor that I use. 
uh, when I was in college back in the early 70s, I kept the uh, scorebook for the basketball team uh, for a couple of years. And so I was the CRM. <laughs> I was the system of record. Uh, and my buddy John Hughes was out on the basketball floor scoring 24, 25 points a night. He was the value selling. He was the value guy. And, you know, who do you think's name anybody knew? Wasn't mine. Yeah. It was the guy scoring. It was uh, LeBron and Michael, uh, uh, Jordan, and uh, so forth. And uh, so we're super excited about the potential uh, and uh, for, for the, you know, for this uh, industry segment, uh, value management, we call it, um, and for the professionals for whom it helps make them better at their jobs. Um, yeah. and, and so it, it sounds like your buyer is typically, I imagine, a CRO, a CMO, but your actual user would probably be kind of, you know, more junior, you know, folks that, you know, report directly to those decision makers. Yeah. So um, up until three years ago, it was almost exclusively the CRO. We've expanded the uh, portfolio to cover the entire buyer journey over the past uh, two or three years. And so now we have uh, chief marketing officers, uh, uh, chief customer officers, even chief product officers at Caterpillar. It's the products organization that invests in uh, and with us in uh, Decision Link for the Value Cloud. So it has uh, changed, but uh, you, you rightly note that, uh, uh, that individual sales professionals and uh, professional services implementers and customer care reps, uh, that's where the rubber meets the road in, uh, in relationship and empowering those people to be better related to their customers and prospects is what we're, uh, you know, it's what we're all about. Yeah, well, you know, I, I want to t- move a little bit away from product and, and, and technical specifications and just talk about company building and culture building in general. And I think there's there's two things to focus on. One is you're an Atlanta organization, right? You've taken funding from the West Coast, and there's a whole conversation we can get into about that. Um, I'll bet Jim Garrett's going to have some interesting things to say about that as well. But, you know, talk about building a company in Atlanta and talk about what you've taken from your past organizations that you're bringing to this one, right? Running a 10-person company is different from a 45-person company, and it's different from what your company is going to be in 12 months. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've led organizations with as many as 1,000 people, so it's way different. Um, the big part of it to me has been um, it's mine, and I've been able to do what I want based on my values and uh, my outlook and so forth. And I'm a, I'm a learner, and I take, uh, uh, I take uh, advice and uh, guidance and direction uh, readily and uh, uh, with, a, with a high amount of desire. If you look at my uh, board of directors and advisors and, um, and so forth, but... Uh, being able to say, here's what I think uh, the need is, and here's what we're going to build to, and here's the set of values we're going to uh, seek to instill in our organization. Um, uh, we just had our uh, kickoff for the new year, and uh, and I every year at kickoff, I uh, you know I go through the value set uh, about, and a, and a principal part of it is I believe uh, in uh, servant leaders and people that uh, put. Uh, their uh, colleagues and their customers and prospects and constituents ahead of their own uh, personal interests that those people are going to succeed very, very well. And so I've been able to do uh, that. John and I have been able to do that. John Porter, my co-founder, tremendous, tremendous guy. Um, and, uh, and I've been able to, we've been able to uh, succeed or fail based on our own, what's in our uh, control, so to speak, and uh, and that has been uh, that's been really gratifying. Atlanta is a great place uh, to build a business. Uh, the reason we started here is because I lived here since the late seventies, right? Uh, but there's a terrific talent pool uh, in Atlanta. Uh, Atlanta is the hub of the South, uh, and uh, there's lots of businesses like Mercedes and State Farm and others being attracted to Atlanta. There's uh, investment being made in Atlanta by people like David Cummings at ATV and the uh, folks down at ATDC and lots of others in, uh, with, a, with a desire, a target, to build Atlanta to a top five technology uh, center in the, um, 
uh, in the United States. I think there's a lot more investment needs to be made before Atlanta can uh, graduate to that. But there's also a uh, recognition in Boston and Silicon Valley and uh, other places that, um, you know, the magic just doesn't exist there. Uh, that there's uh, there's good places, um, you know, uh, all around the country, all over the world uh, to build businesses. But I think Atlanta has a special opportunity um, that um, uh, has been good for, uh, you know, good for us in modest ways, but I think uh, will be uh, uh, very good for um, entrepreneurs and businesses looking to build and achieve. And I think the world's gotten smaller, too. I mean, the Internet is... Uh, and uh, the availability of communication capability and so forth uh, has some uh, warts on it, but uh, but it's made the world smaller and easier to uh, uh, collaborate and uh, remove distances, etc. Well, I, th- I think Atlanta has always had a healthy degree of hubris where maybe our outward statements didn't necessarily match reality yet. But, you know, 15 to 20 years later, it catches up. But I'm thinking of, uh, you know, let's let's think about in the 70s, you know, when, uh, you know, Maynard Jackson wants to make this airport, you know, the, the greatest in the world. And, you know, you could look at that and think Atlanta, really, you know, not that much bigger than Birmingham at the time. And he was probably, you know, he was a number of years behind the actual reality coming. But the things he put in place did it. You know, you could say the same thing about the Olympics. You know, were, were we really a global city in 1996? Well, if you count getting the Olympics, maybe to be, if you compare it to a lot of what we think of as our peers, maybe not. Um, and, and that catches up. And I kind of feel the same way about technology. Are we, are we where we need to be? No. Have we made a lot of good strides and are a lot of amazing things happening in the city? Yes. And so I think the more that, you know, it's sort of the, the act as if, right? The more you say it, the more that you deem it to be reality, actions are taken by kind of the collective to hopefully make that a reality. Well, it's an exciting thing. I think uh, uh, Mayor Jackson was a visionary. It's like, what the heck are you talking about? Uh, But uh, it uh, turned out to be true. Uh, We think in our own uh, world of uh, value management that that's the kind of future uh, for not just our technology, but technology in general of making people more effective at what they do. And there's uh, massive amounts of technology uh, out there that are being weeded out because they're technology for technology's sake rather than technology for value's sake. And not value in the context of what we do, but value in the context of, uh, of what anything uh, ought to do. And uh, so we're excited about uh, that. Uh, I'm a second generation technology person. My, you know, my dad was a, uh, a computer guy from when he was in the service uh, in World War II. And that's how uh, we got uh, uh, started in it. So uh, I've seen, uh, uh, been around it all my life and, uh, and have seen a lot of uh, graduation and uh, you know one of my favorite expressions is uh, we're just getting warmed up. Uh, I think there's uh, uh, lots to come. Some of it's scary. Uh, there's a great company at Atlanta Tech Village called Bark uh, that uh, is a uh, warning uh, technology for uh, parents and teachers for um, uh, to monitor uh, children's activities in. Um, the internet and through gaming consoles and person and, and cell phones and tablets and uh, countless ways of uh, uh, of uh, uh, that, that predators uh, uh, take advantage of uh, children and uh, so forth. And uh, boy, when I think of uh, what we're doing in value management and selling all that other kind of stuff, you know, it pales in uh, comparison to what uh, those kind of valuable technologies uh, are. And so, uh, and, and there's a lot like that out there that are uh, hopefully will make life better for people instead of, uh, in, instead of so absorbed in, uh, in technology. So I'm, I'm familiar with Bark, and uh, I, I certainly wish that as a, as a parent of two very little kids, so I don't have to deal with any of that stuff yet, but I, I I want to live in a world where that, that company doesn't have to exist. Yeah. Uh, uh, 
doubt that's going to happen. I know. Uh, I know. That's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's going to happen. It's a naive wish. But but you talked about yep. the future and, you know, like you're, you're building this company. Um, you've got a recent influx infusion of investment. Um, you know, you're building an application for B2C. What what is the next 12 to 18 months hold for Decision Link? Yeah, so we are expanding um, uh, rapidly. Uh, we're uh, increasing our uh, sales and marketing uh, significantly. We've got a tremendous product. Uh, one of our customers is ServiceNow, one of the great companies in the world. Uh, in the past 12 months, they've done over 30,000 business cases or business value assessments. My team of 15 at Siebel 20 years ago, uh, 15 people could produce 400. <laughs> 30,000. And uh, with no increase in value staff and so forth, it's uh, super exciting. Uh, so we've got a great platform that is uh, uh, enterprise-ready, uh, commercially-hardened uh, 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 security protocols and all that kind of stuff. But there's lots more to do. So we're, we're ramping up our sales and marketing. We're releasing a, a product for CMOs um, uh, on um, March the 1st that will be uh, crazy. And uh, in a good way, uh, we have a, uh, a lot of things to build. We uh, recently partnered with a, uh, offshore, a nearshore development organization down in San Salvador that's given us the ability to scale uh, development very rapidly. The, uh, the first commercial version of uh, Value Cloud was built by three guys. And we've got 45 people in uh, dev now and working on a ton of projects. And so uh, ramp up. Uh, we're looking to triple, triple, triple over the next three years. Uh, Excel wants to take us public. Uh, a lot of things that we weren't even dreaming of um, uh, in, uh, you know, even two or three years ago. So exciting time for us. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, new jobs in Atlanta uh, from our company as well as around the uh, country. Um, uh, and, uh, I think from a maturity uh, standpoint, uh, we're at an inflection point of, uh, of uh, we're 55 or 56 customers today. We'll be several hundred uh, within uh, 18 months and of, uh, you know, taking this uh, particular segment uh, that, uh, and by the way, we stuck to our guns of saying we're not going to be bucketed into sales enablement or Marcom or so forth. We're value management and uh, of uh, taking this segment to a uh, uh, lots of different uh, levels. And um, uh, so very exciting time for us. That's great. That is, that is all fantastic. Love to hear of a homegrown Atlanta success. Um, anyone who's listening who wants to learn more, how do they get in touch with you? www.decisionlink.com. Easy enough. All right, Jim, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you. Okay. Other Jim, Jim Garrett, how you doing? Good, good. Well, I hate to follow that up. Man. <laughs> you know, we, we, we like to have a high caliber of guest on here just to keep everyone on their toes, you know? <laughs> for sure, for sure. <laughs> well, well, look, you, you have, you're, you're an interesting case because you've been involved in just a smattering of Atlanta technology companies and, and many other type of uh, companies. You sit on the board of... Um, you know, tech companies like Hirewire, which we're going to discuss. You also sit on the board of movie studios like Trilith with, you know, people might uh, previously remember their other name as Pinewood. So I'm, I'm interested to pick your brain about how the technology scene has grown, what we're great at, what we're lacking. But specifically right now, you're really involved with Hirewire. Mm -hmm. And I want to understand, one, what's unique about Hirewire and two, and this, you know, sort of two sides of the same coin here, you, you are a picker of winners, right? You know, part of what you need to do in life is to, if you're going to invest in an organization, put your time into it, you need to think they're a winner. And so I'm curious, what is unique about Hirewire that leads you, who's been involved with in so many different organizations, to think it's a winner? Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Um, well, I think specifically to that question, um, you know, it, it fills a need. One of the things that I talk about a lot when I go down to Tech or Auburn or any of these technology schools is the fact that uh, so many people uh, develop solutions for a problem that doesn't exist or, 
or at least is not perceived to exist. And so they find it very frustrating that they come up with this uh, great uh, way of doing things that nobody really cares about. So the the best thing about HireWire is it was designed to specifically fill a need. And uh, a couple of years ago, in fact, 2005, I started a company called Kudzu Interactive, and we later changed the name to Snapfinger uh, for the consumer brand. But we uh, developed the technology and have patents on uh, remote ordering both web and mobile into the restaurant industry. And so if you ordered uh, food online, which a lot of people now do, uh, you were using our platform. And uh, during that time, um, we we were fortunate enough to get about an 80% market share. And I got to know the CEOs of pretty much every major restaurant chain uh, in the country. And one of the common themes that I heard from all of them, uh, without even prompting them, is their single biggest need by a huge margin is the ability to access uh, talent quickly. And the reason for that is because uh, when you look at the restaurant and, for that matter, retail and hospitality industry, those, those um, employees are largely interchangeable. Uh, and they're generally lower skilled. They generally uh, need to be uh, found locally because typically people are not going to drive an hour uh, through traffic to uh, you know a ten or fifteen dollar an hour job, right? So, what was unique about their need is that uh, when you take a look at those industries specifically, it represents about forty million hires per year. And the reason for that is there's about a 200% turnover in restaurant, retail, and hospitality. And what's unique about it as well is people um, don't give notice. It's not like they give a two-week notice. It's like they don't show up because it was a pretty day and they went fishing. Right. Because they can go across the street and get the same job tomorrow. Right? John was here one day. He's not the next. Where did John go? <laughs> right. Yeah. And so what happens is that void – uh, land squarely on the operator, owner, franchisee, and uh, and that's not what they signed up for. And so they've got to find people quickly. So the whole idea behind HireWire, which is unique, is it's not really a job board. It's a place where jobs kind of find you. And um, people get hired very quickly, but and it's largely based on you know, a little bit about their experience, but more about their availability and sort of uh, how close they are uh, to wherever the opportunity is. And so um, for years, the industry um, essentially practiced uh, the same hiring process as companies that hire professionals, where they set up interviews and expect a resume. Well, the kind of... uh, the kind of job opportunities that HireWire addresses, there are no resumes. There's there's bullet points. And that just seems like such a laborious process for <laughs> those types of jobs and those types of jobs that turn over so quickly. Well, that's exactly uh, what sort of inspired us is uh, we kept, you know, I kept hearing from these CEOs um, that uh, – not only um, was the process broken, uh, the problem was it was so inefficient. And, and believe it or not, they told me that the single biggest frustration point for them is people don't show up for interviews that they do set up. So, for example, so we built into our platform this confirmation, uh, sort of a dual handshake confirmation of people showing up uh, for the interviews. And, and for most of these opportunities uh we're talking about a 15 minute interview process it's not it's not that complicated so generally speaking someone can make a decision you know uh to hire somebody pretty quickly and so one of the great things that our application does is it gives uh owner operator uh of any of these establishments the ability to somewhat screen them 
ahead of time. So it's a, a bit like a, what I understand a dating app might. Uh, stole stole the comparison right out of my mouth. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I'm I'm past the dating app. I was uh, yeah. I've been married forty years, and they didn't have dating apps. So, uh, but I but from what I understand, it's very similar because uh, it gives people, you know, the ability to to very quickly create a a sort of a file or a bucket of candidates that they uh, might like to interview and in a in a file for those that is is not really worth their time. Uh, so uh, it really is an efficient way for this specific industry. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, so I've only been married nine years, but still I, you know, we were courting way before this was the norm. So I have never used a dating app, but what I imagine it to be, you know, the, the, the profile, the filters, the swiping right. left or swiping right. I imagine that that sort of functionality and ease of meeting and teaming up and filtering are elements of the technology. Exactly. Yes. I mean, a lot of it, again, like I said, has to do with your availability. You know, one of the things that, uh, Many, many people that work part-time, and by the way, which is pretty much everybody in those industries, uh, largely because those industries don't want to provide health care. So they're not going to let their people work more than 30 hours a a week. So a lot of them have multiple part-time jobs. Mm -hmm. So they have to fit into their schedule, sort of piece it together of what works for them. And uh, look, people listening to this might say, well, okay, I understand the problem, but you've got these platforms like Indeed or ZipRecruiter, right? Anyone who's listening to this show probably enjoys podcasts, and anyone who enjoys podcasts has probably heard a million advertisements for ZipRecruiter and Indeed. So why is this filling a void that those two companies cannot or have not touched on? Right, right. Well, those platforms, and they're great, but they're really designed primarily for professional, skilled uh, labor uh, access. In many cases, management and executive level talent. Uh, HireWire is not for that. In fact, I would probably even argue if you were looking for like a, an executive uh, for your in, within restaurant, retail, or hospitality, it's still not that platform. This is a platform uh, this really targeting, uh, people in that minimum wage to slightly above minimum wage, uh, to find, uh, opportunities quickly and for the employers to find the people quickly and fill that mm-hmm. need very specifically. So it's very, uh, narrow, uh, silo, but it's a large silo because of the volume of activity. Yep. Uh, like I said, there's 50, Roughly 50 million hires a year just in the United States in restaurant, retail, and hospitality. And it's not like those industries are growing. It's 50 million hires because the turnover. Just the churn in and of itself and the fact that, you know, sadly, a lot of these people have more than one job. Right. Um, now, what what is very interesting to me about HireWire, in addition to just the, the need that it serves, which I do agree with you, is is a true need and is a value beyond what some might think of as competitors but really aren't. Um, it's its history, right? T- tell me a little bit more about its history and why this is a unique point in uh, the life cycle of HireWire. Yeah, yeah, great question. And by the way, one other kind of key point is those other two companies you talked about uh, this is actually kind of important and unique to understand. Those are job boards where the hiring side of the equation, it's a, it's a two-sided marketplace. So you have a supply side and a demand side. And so on the demand side of the equation with an Indeed or a Zip Recruiter, it's all driven by originating a job post uh, where somebody says, hey, I need X, right? Um, the difference in HireWire is... Uh, people put themselves out there, and and people looking to hire people find them. So okay. it's almost like a reverse process, uh, number one. Uh, to your question about why is this a unique time, well, HireWire was started actually about uh, four or five years ago, and uh, we put in about $4 million of capital. Uh, we had um, went through an uh, experience where 
platform itself uh, sort of missed the mark originally, and and so they kind of had to go back and and rethink the customer experience and and essentially rebuild the platform. So there was sort of a false start that cost some money, and uh, and then they built it, and and I think they sort of lost their way uh, because being a two sided marketplace. You have to uh, create a great customer experience on both sides of the equation. And in order to do that, you have to be very focused on a market um, before you can start to expand. And I think the, the challenge is, uh, like here in Atlanta back a couple of years ago, there were 7,000 restaurants just in Atlanta on the platform. And it was having great success in a big, you know, hockey stick growth, uh, lots of people on the application. I think there were over 100,000 people that uh, basically put their profile out there. That's sort of like the LinkedIn for the lower-skilled labor market. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what happened was uh, they sort of got lost the focus on the business and got – sort of attracted by the idea of getting venture capital funding quickly. And so venture capital markets are mostly interested in investing in how to scale your business, not how to start your business. And so because of that, they started going into other cities, uh, big markets like Dallas and San Francisco and L.A., too quickly. And what that did was spread their resources. So the lesson there is uh, for entrepreneurs is you have to think big but act small. And you have to really dominate uh, somewhere first and really uh, sort of figure out what's working and what's not working before you start to scale. Because scaling with uh, things that aren't working is bound to sort of sink your ship, so to speak. So we're in a unique position is uh, we, we basically let HireWire uh, go into an idle mode for about two years and weren't really sure, you know, what to do with it. The investors were sort of like, you know, we're not putting any more money in it, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, so many people have called for us to uh, sort of relight it um, and, and oddly enough, during the past two years, it has maintained a pretty decent level of revenue uh, without, you know, any employees, so to speak. So it's continued to function very well. And so we've decided, to, uh, based on some of the market conditions created by COVID and the need for so many of these uh, uh, people in the industry to rehire again and almost start over uh, that we're uh, we're going to invest in, in start over and focus here in Atlanta first and then start to branch out after that. See, th- th- this is just amazing to me. And it really, it is, I mean, it's, it's hard enough for a business to succeed to begin with. Amen. Right. Okay. And the fact that you've basically shifted this thing into neutral there's been no people, no culture supporting it whatsoever, and this thing is still, albeit you know modest, but my God, with no employees or care, still bringing in monthly revenue. Right. Yes, it, it, it's a it's a testament to the product and the need. Um, you know, most and okay, maybe coming back from the dead is not necessarily the right term because you know it never met its demise, but you know, for a company to get a second chance like this, it's exceedingly rare. It, it, you know, it's, it's actually one of the reasons that it inspired me to do something with it. I wasn't really looking for anything to do. In fact, I'm not running the company. We're actually looking for a CEO right now because I'm just uh, not there in my life um, to spend that kind of time and energy with it. But yes, oddly enough, the, former executive management team kind of ran the company out of money and and really left it no choice but to shut it down other than to keep everything operational. So there's been no employees for two years and four months, and it still does over a half million dollars a year in revenue, uh, year in, year out during that. We just ended this year, and it did over a half million dollars 
uh, excuse me, in 2020. So, um, and and that's largely just uh, here in Atlanta. Um, so it's it's almost uh, hilarious, you, you know, that you can't kill it. Yeah, really, really. <laughs> yes, it's, uh, wow. Well, look, that, and that really speaks to the opportunity, right? If, if right. it can do that here in Atlanta without any, you know, tending to, imagine what it can do when you actually put a team behind this thing to supercharge it. Right. And so when I think about the future of this, so look, obviously you started this based upon a need that you heard in very specific, the restaurant industry. Okay. We can tech retail onto that as well. Is there an, is there a case to be made that this applies to, again, I think here in, in Georgia, very, very uh, prominent industry, logistics, warehouse workers, Mm -hmm. those sort of hourly employees. I mean, I imagine that, this isn't just retail. There's a whole lot of other applications, but of course, you've got to focus at the beginning. Right. Uh, you're absolutely right. There are ancillary markets such as you know what you mentioned, warehouse, and and also events and all types of things where they need lower skilled labor and they need them quickly, and and it fills a need. and And there actually is some of that on the application now, but um, but for me, because of just the high degree of turnover, we have focused uh, originally on restaurant, retail, sure. and hospitality because they're somewhat interchangeable. Once you get into uh, warehouse and other stuff, uh, it's generally a little bit of a different type person looking for those types of jobs and, and shifts and hours and things like that. But that capability is there. It can be expanded uh, and there's no real geographical boundaries on this. I mean, we could use this app anywhere, anywhere in the world. Yeah. So yeah, for sure. So look, you, you've you've been growing companies and funding them in the Atlanta area for a long time now, and I'm curious if your you know Jim Berryhill and I touched a little bit upon this. What's changed? What hasn't? I'm curious of your diagnosis, your barometer of success or lack thereof, how far we've come or haven't in the past, I don't know, let's call it two decades or so. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I have been in the technology world for quite a quite a while here in Atlanta, and I was always curious of that myself. And, and, the, and first off, you have to face the facts. And the fact of the matter is there's been no meaningful VC presence in the Atlanta market ever, period. There's been some small people, you know, kind of play around at it, mm-hmm. but there's not the type of energy there is on the West Coast. Right. And so, right. Jim, Jim's got to go to California right. to talk to yeah. Excel. Exactly, you know? exactly. And um, so uh, there's a very good reason for that, by the way. And, and money takes the path of least resistance. And years ago in the state of California, they opened up the Teachers Union Pension Fund to be able to be invested in, uh, you know, higher risk opportunities. And it created this flood of money into that market that basically spawned the venture capital industry. And of course, now it's self-sustaining because they've made so much money, it's ridiculous. And so they just keep reinvesting that. In Atlanta, we're kind of unique because we have so many companies that spawn off uh, great people in the payments industry, in the logistics industry, in the medical industry, but there's just a void of capital to uh, to put back into it. And so even the capital that's here is largely just sophisticated angel money. Yep. Um, it's, it's sort of cobbled together. And so I think for us to do that is going to require some legislative changes to it. And to give you a great example of what I mean by that, several years ago, uh, the state of Georgia uh, created a tax credit opportunity for movies to be made in the state of Georgia. There are now more major, what they call tentpole movies, being made in Georgia than in Hollywood. All right? The reason is because they made it financially lucrative for people to do that. So today... Uh, you mentioned I sit on the board of Trillo Studios. It's the second largest movie studio facility in North America. We're currently filming five major movies down there with Disney and Marvel and Paramount. And uh, basically the facilities down there are, are fully booked for the next three years. And the point is this. Once 
the government uh, looks at how to create incentives for money to come in and be put to work, the money will find the place. Sure. And so I think uh, I would love to see an initiative by this state to say, you know what, we have, you've got Georgia Tech here, you've got the University of Georgia, you've got so many great schools in and around the city of Atlanta. The, the only thing missing is the fuel. And uh, we'd love to see that happen. Well, you know, I think the movie industry analogy is a very apt one. I, I mean, from a real estate perspective, I'm personally working with one now, um, you know, that is kind of in, in high gear and sees the opportunity here based upon everything that has happened in the past, you know, decade or so. You know, who would have thought that a decade ago that the state of Georgia would be synonymous with the movie industry? Who would have thought that at the end credits we would see the little peach symbol? Right. It's just, it's it's unbelievable, really. And now, I mean, the industry can't really be separated from Georgia. No, no yeah. it's, uh, yeah, the, the, um, the genie's out of the bottle. And But I think what it does is it should wake people up to realization that uh, you can uh put things in place and put things in motion that, that create sort of a magnet for capital. And uh, we've got the talent here. We've got the innovation. We've got a lot of great companies here in Georgia that, you know, as people there uh, start to focus on a niche, they, they leave those companies and go off and start their own businesses. We just need, uh, we just need to create a, a venture capital environment that supports it. Well, it sounds like once you're done riding the ship on high wire, you got to go talk to Governor Kemp. That's right. We've had discussions about it for sure, but you got to get the whole legislation on board. Yeah. Well, look, um, if, if anyone wants to learn more about Hirewire or you got a qualified CEO who just happens to be listening to this conversation, right. how do they get in touch with just you? Just Jim at Hirewire.com. H-I-R-E-W-I-R-E. Okay. Jim, thanks for joining. Sure. Thank you. Anita, you've been waiting patiently over there. How you doing? Hey, good morning. I'm doing well. Thank you. Excellent. Okay. So we are here to talk about my supplier. You are the chief operating officer of my supplier. Yes, I uh, joined the company in 2015, about a year after the company uh, was founded. Um, My journey began um, as the operations manager and just have been blessed to grow as the company has grown and uh, became the vice president of operations. And then in 2019, the COO. Your your story and position, I think, is an interesting vantage point because a lot of times on this show we have, you know, C-level executives, but they happen to be some sort of a co-founder. You, you're there from the beginning, right? You've seen this company from its infancy to the stage as it is now, but you, you know, you might not have sort of the the blinding, uh, you know, love for the child that is your company. You have sort of an outside vantage point as well as an inside vantage point of what's going on in there, I would imagine. Absolutely. I'm, uh, I work for, with some great visionaries in our company, and I always say that, um, you know, I'm the one that takes the vision and tries to make it happen. So um, in that, uh, we really started out as a uh, energy-efficient lighting company in 2014. Okay. And then as we... expanded our business model. We added um, auditing and turnkey services into our business model and and basically taking the layers of the industry, which was auditing, uh, procurement, uh, design, um, specification, uh, installation, and uh, rebate management, and bringing that into one company and essentially creating a one-stop shop for customers with a flexible engagement model. Okay, and so when we say customers, are you working with owners of property or are you working with contractors who service those buildings? So we partner with um, contractors and energy service companies and national accounts um, to provide technology solutions to create um, smart uh, buildings that are... Um, IoT-driven technologies through our partnership with Enlighten, which is a Siemens company, um, as well as creating sustainable, energy-efficient buildings, and then smart buildings where we, um, I'm sorry, safe buildings where we focus on healthy um, work environments. Okay. 
So basically so, covering a, a building from every single angle. Okay. Um, IOT is a bit of a buzzword and for good reason. But for those listening that aren't necessarily familiar with what that is and why it is important now and in the future, give a little primer, please. Absolutely. So uh, there's a lot of different um, facets to it, uh, depending on the uh, building type uh, or industry. Um, anything from, um, you know, your uh, commercial and industrial to even retail. Um, just to give you an example, uh, asset tracking is, is one of those. And um, what, how that happens is uh, there's a beacon in the lighting and uh, then uh, an asset tag put on uh, a, a piece of merchandise or, or that kind of a thing. Just to give you an example, Atlanta Airport. So you wouldn't believe the amount of time that is spent looking for wheelchairs. Passengers that are disabled have to get on the flights first, right? Mm-hmm. So and um, so you can put that beacon in, you know, that's in the lighting and put that uh, tag on a wheelchair, bring up an application that will be able to show the uh, airport personnel exactly where an available wheelchair is that speeds up time that um, creates, you know, uh, flights to be on time just a few minutes here or there can really make a difference. Um, you can also put those on, uh, create geofencing for retail in which you, um, you know, can put those on merchandise to uh, be able to create, uh, you know, an area in which if a, mer- a piece of merchandise goes outside that geofencing, then, um, you know, that is identified um, Two, we've had trucking companies that put asset tax on, you know, couches and, and, and different pieces of furniture to make sure it got in the right truck. So there's just so many different applications that uh, can happen from um, an asset tracking, um, energy optimization, just a lot of different um, ways that IoT um, can be used. You know, I, I mean, look, the, the wheelchair example is such a... It is such an unsexy example <laughs> of, of how this technology can be used. But those type of examples are often the, the ones that have the most opportunity to be disrupted. Um, I'm constantly amazed at, you know, not just what you read about in your daily life, but the people that I have on the show that talk about this problem that it, this, it, it's like you would think the technology has solved every single analog solution that we have. And, you know, you just consistently learn that, no, there are so many things out there that are being done inefficiently so simply that technology can help. And I totally believe it with the wheelchair example, right? Just think about the way that we all treat shopping carts at a grocery store, right? Sometimes we put them back. Sometimes we're in a hurry and you kind of leave them, you know, out in a, you know, in the area that's not the designated area. And if you can multiply that by 10 on how people would treat wheelchairs at an airport, um, so that, that makes total sense. And I'd imagine that asset tracking is not just an ability to streamline a process and create efficiencies for the buildings and customers that you're serving, but also so that, you know, they're not losing money, right? Not having to buy additional inventory where, because they just don't know where it is. Absolutely. It can also be life-saving measures too. Uh, we've, uh, seen that in hospitals where, uh, you know, doctors need to know where ca- crash carts are. Yeah. Nurses need to know where uh, a cart is for this emergency or that emergency. So it, it really does have multiple industry implications. So, okay, you're, you're serving generally contractors that are servicing a building, okay? Do you have any interaction with, I don't know, a purchasing department, a supply chain executive? It seemed to me that these sort of technologies would be extremely important to them. So as you can imagine, the um, in, in the industry and, and, and so to speak, construction, because a lot of what we do is through the lighting, um, you know, and, and how we got our original start in 2014 was uh, we started as a lighting efficiency uh, company. And um, just as we have grown and, um, you know, changed that business model, uh, you know, it, it, we're still, you know, still tend to partner with those, um, you know, contractors, mm-hmm. energy service companies, and, uh, you know, national accounts is where we might have more of a, 
a direct customer relationship with uh, those types of businesses. But otherwise, we're, we're considered more of a partner when we work with uh, the service companies and the contractors and more of an extension of their uh, company. Uh, a lot of times that with the services that we're providing, you know, they don't have to go out and hire, uh, you know, we're bringing a lot of multiple layers in from the industry. So they don't have to go to several uh, companies to, you know, get a design work done to get, uh, you know, procurement. So we're bringing that all into one house, but then we also uh, are able to, you know, streamline sometimes their ability for their team so they can take on bigger projects, uh, sometimes more projects in a year based on the services that we're providing them. Got it. Okay. Why is this mission important right now? What what is going on in the world in the particular industries that you serve that these functions really make a difference in the you know time that we're speaking at? Well, just for example, our our safe building um, you know platform is really designed for uh, you know the health and safety of a building, and 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 that uh, division of our company came to be uh, you know this past year in two thousand twenty uh, due to COVID. We um, you know, pivoted our company. We had, um, in 2019, we had our best year. Uh, we had doubled our revenue uh, from the previous year, and we were on track for 2020 to do the same. And uh, then our core business was uh, impacted by COVID. We, it, it was rocked. Mm-hmm. Uh, projects were putting being put on hold. Uh, basically, uh, you know, our customers couldn't even open their businesses because of PPE uh, shortages in the industry, you know, in, uh, you know, throughout the country. And so what we had to do, we, we quickly realized that we have to pivot and we have to, uh, you know, lever- we, we pivoted our company, we leveraged our uh, expertise in technology and our global supply chain uh, relationships. And we basically created that safe building division uh, based out of health and safety needs for our customers. So not only were we able to put, um, you know, critical PPE in the in the hands of our customers, but we were also able to supply uh, 5 million N95 masks to Arizona State Department and uh, as well as uh, thermal imaging devices for uh, temperature uh, screenings and uh, UVC lighting disinfecting products in uh, schools and businesses. Yeah, well, that that makes uh, and look, I wanted to ask you about kind of what you know, all businesses have had to make adjustments, and it sounds like you guys were able to really, uh, you know, move quickly and you know pivot your services where they were really needed, and uh, you know, as an attribution to how well things have gone, I think your CEO is right now opening up some sort of Canadian operation. Is that correct? Yes, yeah. we we have offices in. Uh, uh, South America, India, and uh, Canada. So we are expanding those offices in Canada. We really had planned to uh, do a little bit uh, quicker in 2020. It was part of our 2020 plan that kind of got pushed into 2021. Uh, COVID uh, related to that, you know, kind of pushed that out a little bit. But uh, we're excited uh, at the growth of our company. I'm just, uh, you know, have been blessed to grow with the company and and many of our team members as well. Uh, we essentially started our company with four people back in 2014. So, and, and now we have grown uh, to, uh, you know, 25 to 30 uh, team members on our team now. So um, it's, it's been a great journey. And so what, what are you spending most of your time on these days? So I'm, I'm the operations manager. I really am the process uh, person in our company. So uh, as you can imagine, when you are growing a, uh, a company from, uh, you know, as, as small as we are to what we are today, uh, there's a lot of processes along the way um, from, you know, you know, processes of just, you know, from each department and their, uh, how they play into uh, our success and the success of our company. And, and that's a big part of what I do is, is just work with each department and uh, streamline processes um, and uh, support our, 
uh, CEO and uh, majority owner in our vision for the future of the company as well. And the vision for the future, I mean, if I caught up with you in 12 to 18 months, what would we be talking about? Yeah, we're just, we are wanting to continue to grow. I think that our, uh, you know, what's happening in our country and um, the focus on energy efficiency uh, for buildings, and uh, I, we want to be part of that. And we, uh, and I think that most everyone, even before something would be mandated, really wants to, you know, save energy, um, you know, keep their employees uh, safe and their clients safe, and protect their revenue streams. And uh, I, I think that's a big part of uh, what we have to contribute. And uh, we're just looking forward to continuing our growth and expansion across uh, the U.S. Well, look, as, as, as someone in commercial real estate, I mean, I feel like there's a massive opportunity for y'all with landlords, building owners, development owners that, uh, you know, some of the best ones were focused on this already. And now, you know, even the mediocre ones have to be focused on all this stuff now. It's just it's, uh, you know, it's it's the price of getting in the room and recruiting, you know, a business to want to be a part of your development or a building. It's not a nice to have. It's a, you know, assume what are you doing on this front now? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and when you're, uh, when you're taking the multiple layers of, uh, you know, the industry and, and putting that into one company, I think that's appealing to customers. Uh, you know, you don't, you're not going to, uh, one company to procure your items and another design company and another uh, company for installation. You know, when you come to my supplier, uh, we can handle it all. We also do a lot of uh, rebate uh, research in uh, different states of how uh, that can bring down um, the cost of the project and really drive that ROI, as well as uh, there's a lot of programs out there. Uh, we did a lot of uh work last year, uh, despite COVID and stay at home work orders and all of that in California last year for, uh, 34 buildings, uh, warehouse buildings we did in a span of basically three months, which is amazing when I think about it. Um, so from July into October and, and those were, uh, through a program on bill financing. Mm -hmm. So it was a great, uh, you know, a great way that this customer could, uh, you know, retrofit the lighting and really bring down their energy cost. Um, and, uh, then also, uh, you know, take advantage of rebates and on bill financing programs in that state. That's great. That, that's great to hear that you guys have been so busy even throughout all of this. Yeah, absolutely. Blessed. So if uh, those listening want to learn more about what you guys do at my supplier, how is the best way to get in touch? Yeah. Uh, so if you're wanting to uh, check us out, uh, LinkedIn, we have a huge LinkedIn presence, including uh, a my supplier supplier cares program. Uh, where we uh, contribute uh, PPE to nonprofit and uh, local schools. Uh, and that's uh, through our LinkedIn, My Supplier, as well as our website, which is www.mysupplier.com. Great. All right, Jim, Jim, and Anita, thank you all so much for joining and making this a great tech talk. And as always, thanks to our great partner, Trevelino Keller, for help putting this on. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.